Please remain standing for the reading of Scripture. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John 6 will be in verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where do we buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this glorious morning in which we can come together and set our eyes upon Christ and seek our satisfaction in Him. Lord, as we have sung, there is nothing else that can satisfy except Christ alone. And it is our prayer that with every morning when the sun comes up, that you would satisfy us in Christ. Lord, we want to know Christ all the more. We want to pursue Him. We want to be near Him. We want to be conformed to His image, and we want to exalt Him with our lives. And we pray this morning that as we dig into this passage that You would help us to see once more that He is the only thing that can truly satisfy for the soul. So, Father, be with us this morning. Be working among us. Help us to fix our eyes upon Christ. Help us to exalt Your Son to glorify your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Well, last night, uh, for those of you who weren't here, we had a beautiful and wonderful memorial service for a dear sister of ours, Corin Meek. She was Faith Community Church's oldest member ever. 
She actually joined our church last fall at 100 years of age. And for those of you who do not know, she was the mother of Randy Meek, one of our deacons, and she went home to be with the Lord just a few weeks ago. Uh, As I was preparing for that message, one thing that struck me about her life that I wanted to share with you all this morning was just the simple consistency that she displayed in her life over many, many, many years. The first thing that Randy told me about her when I had asked for him to give me some insight on on his mother, the first thing that came to his mind when speaking of her life was that she was in her Bible every day, and that she was praying every day, and that she was in the Lord's Church every Sunday. In fact, she actually drove herself to church until she was 99 years of age. And she, was, she was a Christian for 87 years, having been saved at 13. And that is a long time to display consistency in one's life, one's relationship with the Lord. And as I said last night, there is, there is not much in this world that can captivate the fickle heart for 87 years. But the true believer is satisfied in Christ for an eternity. And her consistency came from her love for and her satisfaction in Christ alone. Her love for the Lord. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today in this story about this miraculous meal that took place at the hands of Christ. The satisfaction that the people received from eating their fill is meant to point us to the true satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ. He is the true and living bread that is sent from heaven. We are now beginning what I believe to be one of the most theologically rich chapters in all of the Bible. John has masterfully weaved together some some of these themes that he's been putting on display as the centrality of the person of Christ comes to the forefront of God's plan of redemption. Not only that, but in the, in the coming discourse, Jesus will begin to unveil God's sovereignty in salvation as, as he discusses how it is that some come to him and who it is that actually comes to him. The doctrines of grace are brought forth with clarity in this chapter of Scripture. But the emphasis of it all is that it is to him that one must come for one's soul's satisfaction. As Peter will say at the end of it at all, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. But before we get to that, John sets the scene. He sets this whole thing up by first relaying the story of another public sign that Jesus performs testifying to who he is. And this whole chapter is designed exactly the way we saw chapter 5 was designed. Just Jesus displays his power through working a sign and then building off of the miracle that was performed, a theological discourse follows, in which Jesus teaches the meaning behind what he has done. It's a beautiful and, and divine construction. The illustration first And then comes the meeting. Well, today we're going to look at the event itself, the 
the feeding of the 5,000. A familiar story, no doubt. But we're going to view this story in, in four parts. In, in John's literary style, he often tells his story with, with four overarching parts, and each of them are significant to his overall purpose. So we have, we have the introduction, the setting, then we have the conflict, and then we have the resolution to the conflict, and then we, we have the results of it all, the, the conclusion. So the setting, the conflict, the resolution, and the results. That's how, that's how John frames this story. But as we look at this story, this story of Christ providing for a people... It is actually, and ironically, meant to point us to the fact that Jesus is not a means to an end. He is, in fact, the end in and of himself. Jesus is not just a tool that you can use for your own purposes or for your own desires. Jesus is meant to be the fulfillment of your desires. He is the soul's satisfaction. Those who are not satisfied in Christ or seek to use Him only to acquire other means of satisfaction have every reason to believe that they are not actually His, that they do not belong to Him. No matter how much religious activity they may engage in or how much they may claim His name, they are not His if He is not the source of their satisfaction. As we will see today, Christ must be our soul's satisfaction. So let's, let's look at this story. And let's, let's start by looking at the setting, the introduction for this story. Look at verse 1. John says this. He says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So John again transitions away from the previous section that ended in chapter 5 with the words, after this. As we have seen by this point, this is John's very typical way of just transitioning from one story to the next. But it really does not tell us much or anything at all about how much time transpired in between the two events. However, here there are several clues that would seem to indicate that a significant amount of time has passed between John chapter 5 in John chapter 6. One of those clues is in verse 4. John mentions that the Passover was at hand, or it was drawing near. So this, this story takes place in the springtime. Well, if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 5, John also began that chapter with the mention of a Jewish feast that was going on, which is why Jesus was in Jerusalem. Now, John didn't specify which feast that was, but the nearest feast would have been the Feast of Booze, which took place in the fall. So at a bare minimum, six months have passed, which gives explanation to the, the geographical jump here. In chapter 5, he was in Jerusalem. Now he has clearly been back in Galilee for some time and. He's actually getting on a boat to travel to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And John inserts here, just as really a footnote for his readers, uh, that this is also called the Sea of Tiberias. 
Now, he does that because he is writing several decades past the time in which this event actually happened. And over that time, this, this body of water, which is really just a large lake, it's not a sea as we would think of a sea, um, that, that, that lake had, had come to be known as the Sea of Tiberias. That's how his readers in the first century would have known it. But when Jesus crossed it, it was still called the Sea of Galilee. Now, Mark records the exact same story for us in Mark chapter 6. And the reason, he tells us, the reason that why they were crossing the sea was in order to find a place of rest, a place to get some reprieve. Jesus' ministry in Galilee has, has been going in full swing. He's already sent out his disciples. They have already returned to him. Uh, he's been preaching the gospel. He's been preaching repentance. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing the sick and so on. And as a result, they have had so many people coming to them constantly, frequently, so much so that Mark says that they had no rest and they didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus makes the call to give himself and his disciples some reprieve. So they get in a boat and they cross the sea to try to find a desolate place to rest and to pray and to eat. However, Mark lets us know that as they were getting on the boat, they were spotted. And the crowd of people, having spotted them getting into the boat, decided to follow them. And that's exactly what we see here. Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, when they followed him, they didn't, they didn't follow by boat. They actually went by foot. Now, Jesus would have been crossing, crossing from the, the west side of, of the lake to the east side, but he would have been close to the northern shore, the northern edge. So as he crossed, the people actually went on foot around the north side of the lake to get to where he was going. But notice their motivations. Why were they chasing after Jesus? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This is a continuing theme in this book, this theme of superficial faith that at its core is really about self-interest. It's not about the worship of God. It's not about repentance of sin. It's not about true recognition of who Christ is. It's about self-interest. This theme began back in chapter 2 when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the first Passover in the book of John. He says this, he says, Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. See, they believed in his name, yes, but it was a superficial faith. Then we see this again at the end of, of chapter 4 when Jesus had returned from Jerusalem to Galilee after his trek through Samaria. John notates how the Galileans had welcomed him because they saw what he had done in the Jerusalem, the signs that he had performed. But of this welcoming, Jesus had testified that he had no honor 
in his homeland. It was a superficial welcoming. And here again, we have the Galileans who are willing to chase him all the way around to the other side of the lake, but it is simply because of the miracles. And that's going to become important, both in how they respond to what Jesus is going to do, and then especially later in how they will respond to his discourse. But the fact is, this is still true today. There is so much religious activity going on in the name of self-interest, in the name of seeking one's own desires in the name of Jesus. It's about seeking what, what the heart is truly after, not Christ Himself. And this is, this is why false teachers can attract massive crowds. When you make promises that appeal to the natural heart, that, that will certainly preach. And it will draw a massive crowd because the natural heart is driven by self-interest. It will preach, but it, it won't preach the truth. Because the fact is, Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the purpose. He is the treasure. He is the goal. He is the great reward for those who believe. He is the soul's satisfaction. We are to be after Him, not merely what He can provide. But let's keep going. Look at this. Look at verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now, John alone uniquely adds this little detail about the mountain. And many believe, and I think they are right, that this is meant to remind the Jewish readers of another prophet who spoke from a mountain, which, of course, would be Moses from Mount Sinai. That theme of Jesus as the better Moses is massively at play in this book, and especially in this chapter, in John chapter 6. Now, certainly it's, it's subtle and, and implicit here, but it's going to become a lot more explicit as we move on. But he went on this mountain, he sat down with his disciples to rest, and then in verse 4, John notates that the Passover feast, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, John mentions this not just for chronological purposes, he actually wants this fact to be sitting as a theological backdrop for everything that is going to happen, both in the miracles, but most especially in the discourse that follows. And John does this with the Passover. Every Passover that he mentions in the book of John is meant to point us, to point the readers to the death of Christ, to the true Passover lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. We saw this the first Passover, chapter 2. It was there that Jesus had made himself known in Jerusalem by cleansing the temple, cleansing his father's house, and then publicly challenging the leaders to destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. And John let us know that he was talking about the temple of his body, foreshadowing his death. And the second Passover is this Passover. 
in which Jesus will declare that the bread that He will give for life is His flesh, His sacrificial flesh, and that we are dependent upon His flesh and His blood for life. And then in the third Passover, the final Passover in the book of John, is the Passover in which the Lamb of God is truly sacrificed, in which Christ will lay down His life on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. John is very intentional to bring out the timing of these Passovers to serve as these theological backdrops for the stories that unfold. The greater exodus is taking place. And from a a Jewish perspective, it's also important to note that the Passover was a yearly time of nationalistic zeal. It was a rallying time for the nation of Israel. It was very similar to what we think of when we think of the, the 4th of July, but it was much more intense, and it was much more significant, and it lasted a lot longer. It was a time that the Jews remembered God's deliverance of them from the bondage of Egypt. That Israel was a chosen nation with God's special blessing upon it. And it was a time when the Jews had set their hope, had renewed their hope for a future and coming deliverance at the hands of their anticipated Messiah. That hope was at its highest at the Passover. Messianic fever was stirring among the Jews. It was a significant nationalistic rallying cry for Israel. So that is the setting in which all of this is taking place. Now let's look at the conflict. Look at verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. John is very detailed in his memory of what he saw. He is here, he's present at this moment, sitting with Christ, and his eyes are clearly on Christ. He's watching Christ, and as he's watching Christ, he noticed that Christ lifts up his eyes, and he sees the crowd coming. And this language that he chooses is very reminiscent of what we saw in chapter 4 with the, with the Samaritans, the encounter with the Samaritan revival. As that crowd was drawing near, it was Jesus who actually encouraged his disciples to lift up their eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Well, here again, we have a a crowd drawing near, seeking Christ, but there's a difference. The difference is they were not coming for him as the Samaritans were, but rather they were coming for what he can do. But Jesus does two things here. First, he is going to condescend and meet these people at the level of their desire. Despite knowing why they were coming after them, Jesus has compassion upon them. Mark explicitly brings that out. He says that he was, he was moved with compassion for the crowd. Now, most certainly, these, these were desperate times. Uh, food was scarce. Medical care was almost nil. It was nothing like what we have. So in many ways, these were desperate people. 
And having seen what Jesus can do, they were, of course, after what he can provide. And in compassion, Jesus is going to provide for them. He is going to physically feed them here. But this isn't going to be mercy ministry just for the sake of mercy ministry. He isn't handing out food in order to just feed the poor and move on. Through the feeding, he is actually going to give this crowd an object lesson that they would never forget. A much greater gift than a singular meal. He's going to meet their physical need in order to point them to their spiritual need, their real need. And just as an aside, there's, there's actually a lesson here to be learned. When, when sharing the gospel with others, often if you can meet a physical need, it can soften the heart enough to gain a hearing. In our circles, we're often leery of mercy ministries or any form of social need meeting, and I understand that. I don't want to waste my time handing out a cup of cold water to someone who is on their way to hell without an opportunity to tell them about the truth of the gospel. I get that. But sometimes a cup of cold water is the very thing that will open the heart to give a hearing to the gospel. So don't be adverse to meeting people's needs. Will you get taken advantage of? Absolutely you will. Of course you will. Christ gets taken advantage of, even here. But it also might open the door for you to speak the truth that otherwise might not have been opened. For the gospel to be heard. Now the second thing that Jesus is doing here, beyond meeting the needs of the people, is just like he did in the Samaritan encounter, he is using the opp- this opportunity with this crowd to teach his disciples an important lesson. So he asks Philip a testing question, knowing what he was about to do. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, why Philip of all of his disciples? Why not John or James or somebody else? We actually asked Philip simply because Philip was from this area. On the east side of this lake, very near to where they would have landed, and very near to where they were at this very moment, was the town of Bethsaida. That was the hometown of Philip, which we learned in chapter 1. So Jesus is essentially saying to Philip, Philip, these are your stomping grounds. Where can we get some food? Now, on a physical level, the question is intentionally absurd. Verse 10 tells us that there was about 5,000 men in this crowd. And it's careful to specify the men. And all four of the Gospels that mention this story do this. They use the same language. They specify the men. So that's not counting the women and the children. And most scholars assume that when you counted up both the women and all the children that would have been present, you're actually dealing with about 15 up to 20,000 people in this crowd. This was a massive crowd that was present. And with this crowd this size, it would not matter if if they had a a Costco in Bethsaida. You're not going to find enough bread. And Philip understands that. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough 
to get each of them a little. And this was actually a bit of a sharp retort from Philip. Philip is kind of saying, Jesus, what are you thinking? We can't feed all of them. Now, 200 denarii was a significant amount. A denarii was a, a silver coin that was a standard payment for an entire day's wage. In our culture, by our time and today's standards, 200 denarii would be the equivalent of anywhere from about forty to $50,000. And probably much more with all the inflation issues that we're having. But Philip is essentially saying... If we had $50,000, that would not be enough to get everyone a little. This was a massive crowd. But Philip, Philip's problem was that he was fixated on the crowd rather than on the Christ. And not only is that true for Philip, Andrew doesn't fare much better. Look at verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, Mark's gospel tells us that it was Jesus who had sent the disciples out to take inventory on what the people had, and this was all they came up with. Five barley loaves and two fish. Now, the word loaves here is kind of deceiving for us. This, this wasn't a loaf like what we would think of with a loaf of bread. These were actually more like biscuits. The, these were small little snacks, in, in essence. And the fish actually would have been pickled fish to keep them from going bad. This was basically a standard and small lunch for a working class person that this boy had. And while Philip is fixated on the giant crowd, Andrew is fixated on this tiny meal, and none of them are fixated on Christ. And the truth is, they had all missed the point of the question. Just like Jesus has been doing throughout this gospel, he's, he's not talking on a physical level. He's not looking for them to come up with a physical source. He's talking on a spiritual level. Just as God had provided food for the Jews in the wilderness during the exodus, manna from heaven, so He can provide for this crowd as well. And the truth is, the God who provided in the exodus is standing here with them in the flesh. His disciples should be getting this by now. Up to this point, they have seen countless signs, the very first of which was the one they witnessed when Jesus creatively took water and turned it into wine. They should understand this. He is the source. He is the creator. He is the provider standing there with them. He's not asking them to find a physical solution to the problem. He's trying to get them to see who He is as the solution to the problem. But his disciples, just like us, continue to miss it. Continue to show their spiritual dullness. Because we are all so prone to fixate on the physical. What our eyes can see and what our minds can come up with. And Philip, Philip rightly picks up on the absurdity of the question Andrew rightly sees the insufficiency of the provisions, but in spite of everything they have already been through, no one considers that Christ is the solution. How often, 
How often do we do the same thing? Jesus was testing their faith. And Jesus continues to do this. Jesus continues to test the faith of his disciples, of us, through the circumstances of our lives. Often he will place us in or send us circumstances that will test our faith. Are we going to trust him? Are we going to look to him? Or are we going to lean on our own strength, the power of our own flesh, the might of our own intellect? The question we need to ask, though, is why does he do this? What's he, what's he, what's he getting at? What's he trying to accomplish? Why does he test his disciples? Why does he test us? Because he, he's trying to learn whether or not our faith is real or not? No, he knows the answer to that. See, it's not, it's not for his sake that he tests his disciples. It's actually for ours. Because in that, in the test, for the true believer, what he is doing when he tests you is actually growing your faith. He is weaning you off of your dependence upon yourself and your dependence upon your flesh and your dependence upon this world around you. He is strengthening your trust in Him and producing endurance in your life and in your faith. It's exactly what the book of James says. That's why James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why would we count it joy to meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. And steadfastness, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God will see to it that all of those who are truly His will persevere to the end. But He does that through means. And the means by which He does that is often the testing of our faith so that He can produce endurance in us. Endurance that will one day lead to the crown of life. See, each, each test that we go through is meant to demonstrate to our hearts of the faithfulness of Christ and the need for Christ. Now, the disciples did not fare well in this test, but they did not miss the lesson. It did not prove that they have no faith. It actually strengthened the little faith that they have at this point. As you will see by the end of this chapter, as a result of everything that is done and said, there is a massive difference in the way that the disciples view Christ and the way the crowd viewed Christ. The crowd abandons Christ, but the disciples say, where else can we go? Their faith was strengthened. Endurance was gained. And that's where we want our hearts to be. That even if, even if the whole world rejects Christ, that we, no matter what we are facing or what we are going through in this life, would say, where else can we go? He alone is my satisfaction. He alone is the one who has the words of eternal life. And Jesus is driving this point home 
to his disciples and to us. But here you have this, this massive crowd and this tiny lunch. And John emphasizes these details on purpose. And when the disciples' faith was tested, they could not see a way forward. But Jesus is going to show them. Let's look at the resolution. Look what happens here. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, John, being an eyewitness to this entire encounter, provides details from his memory. And I'm sure it was a vivid memory for him. It was springtime near the Passover, so the grass was green and lush. It was likely a beautiful setting for an outdoor meal, though no one truly knew what they were about to receive. Very much like the wedding at Cana, Jesus does not explain himself or tell people what he is about to do. He just issues an order. And the disciples, they have enough faith to obey him. They didn't instantly think of him as the source or the solution here, but they have seen enough to know that when he starts organizing things, something is about to happen. So they go out into the crowds and seat the people. And Mark's gospel actually tells us that they seated them in groups, groups of about 50s or 100s, likely for the purpose of, of leaving aisles in between that they could walk through. 15 to up to 20,000 people sitting down, not knowing what is about to happen. And then look at what happens. Look at 11 through 13. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may, may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. As far as just the, the, the sheer size and magnitude and the scope of this miracle, this was the largest miracle that Jesus ever performed. This was a creating something out of nothing and doing it for up to 20,000 people. 20,000 people were not just witnesses to this miracle, but actually participants in the miracle. They actually ate the miraculous food, the bread and the fish that Christ had created. Bread that did not exist just moments prior is now feeding a multitude of people. But Jesus began by, by giving thanks to the Father over these five barley loaves and these two fish that he had. He begins, begins by giving thanks for the provision of this food. And just as an aside, if even the Son of God stopped to give thanks to the Father for the provision of food, how much more? Should we be regularly thanking God for His provisions in our lives? I mean, everything that we have, every, every meal that we eat, every glass of water that we drink is, in fact, a gift from God. It's, it's God's provisions in our lives. Don't ever let the mealtime prayer that you give become so routine 
that there's actually no real thankfulness behind it. It's just a religious ritual that's performed before, before you eat. Don't do that. Stop. Give actual thanks for what has been provided to you. Jesus thanks his Father for these meager provisions before this massive crowd. And then he just starts distributing. And Mark, Mark's gospel makes it clear that he had employed the disciples in this act. He gave to them and they went and gave to the people. They would take their baskets and go unload them to the people and they would come back. And every time they came back, there was just, there was just more and more and more. So much so that it says everyone there had eaten their fill. This isn't like some gatherings or parties that you've been to where everyone gets a little just to ensure that everyone gets something and really you're kind of eyeballing the table because you're still hungry. It's not, not that, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's not that event at all. This host They demonstrated lavish provisions for everyone there. Everyone was stuffed. Up to 20,000 people had their fill. Can I have seconds? Yes, yes, have thirds. There is more than enough for everybody. There was so much food that at the end, in, in Jewish custom, you don't, you don't waste anything that you've given thanks for. And so in keeping with that, they gather all of the remainder up. And there were still 12 baskets full that the, the 20,000 people couldn't even finish. They couldn't eat. This was a bountiful harvest that was provided. I believe, as, as with many commentators, that there actually is some symbolism here in the 12 baskets. Knowing that Christ will make it clear that, that the, the provision of the bread is meant to point us to the provision of His flesh as he will explicitly say in verse 51 the bread that i will give is the life of the world for the life of the world is my flesh knowing that it may be that these 12 baskets show us that in christ there is enough provision for all 12 tribes of israel and beyond he came for his own people but he came for the whole world there is more than enough But the satisfaction that they had from this meal, the fill that they had received from the bread, that's what it was meant to point them towards. It was meant to point them to the true satisfaction that can be found in Christ alone. For as full as they may have been from the bread and the fish, they will be hungry again. It's not lasting, as we will actually see in the coming Passages, they will be hungry again. But the satisfaction that one finds in Christ is lasting satisfaction. It's eternal satisfaction. It is the soul's satisfaction. And the question is, did they, did they get it? Did the crowd understand? Did they see it? Do they see the beauty of the one who is standing before them, who just provided for them and fed them in a miraculous manner? Well, let's see. Let's look at this conclusion now. Look at verses 14 15. It says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again 
to the mountain by himself. Now, what, what, what just happened? Notice that John calls this a sign. This is now the fourth sign performed by Christ that John highlights. There's been many signs, but it's the fourth one that John highlights. And it says that they, they saw the sign that he had done. But the truth is they, they didn't truly see it. Because what, what is a sign? What does a sign do? A sign points to a greater reality. A sign is meant to inform one of something else. If somebody comes to our church and they see the sign outside that says Faith Community Church, if they get out of their car and go stand next to the sign, they actually haven't arrived at the church. The sign is not an end to itself. It's not pointing to itself. It's pointing to a greater reality. And the greater reality, obviously, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they recognized that the sign was pointing to something. And they do come to a partially correct conclusion about Christ. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, we've seen this language. What, what prophet is he talking about? are they talking about? We, we've seen this before. Now, this is an explicit reference to the prophet like Moses, that Moses prophesied would come into the world in Deuteronomy 18. At the conclusion of chapter 5, Jesus claimed to be the one of whom Moses had wrote about. He was speaking the very same thing. So they are affirming what Jesus has already claimed about himself. This is true. He is the prophet who is to come into the world. But here's why I say that they are only partially correct. They had built a construction in their heads about who this prophet was and what he would do. They were looking for a deliverer better than Moses that would lead them into overthrowing the Romans, the Roman oppression that was upon them. They still did not care about Jesus for Jesus. They want Jesus because they wanted out of their oppression. He was still a means to an end. And if Jesus was ever going to assume that role, this was his chance. You got 5,000 men hyped up in their nationalistic zeal at the Passover, ready to make him king. This was his opportunity if that's why he came. But that's not why he came. And you can't make Jesus into who you want him to be. You cannot conform him to your desires. That is actually unbelief to even attempt to do so. You see, they actually didn't really believe that he was the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. Do you know why I know that? Because the prophecy stated that his role, the coming prophet, would be the one who would reveal all that God had commanded. And whoever does not listen to him will be held accountable by God. That's what Jesus came for. But did this crowd listen to Christ? No. In fact, as soon as he starts teaching them in the following discourse, they are going to turn their backs on him. If they truly believed he was the prophet to whom they must listen, they wouldn't have done that. See, they didn't believe him to be the Christ. 
They just wanted a quick deliverer, and they were ready to force him to be king. You see, not all faith is true faith. Not all those who claim Christ are actually trusting in Christ. There are an infinite amount of false Christs out there in this world. If you have created a Christ of your own imagination who is conformed to your desires, then you have created an idol. Here are some, some of the current Christs that exist in our culture today. The Christ of the prosperity gospel. That's an idol. The Christ that saves everyone. Christ of universalism. That's an idol. The Christ who approves of homosexuality. That's a growing one in our culture. That's an idol. The Christ of cheap grace. That's an idol. The Christ of social justice and wokeism. That's an idol. The Americana Christ. That's an idol. The therapeutic Christ. That's an idol. And on and on we could go. These are all idols. If you're following one of those Christs, you're not serving the true Christ, for none of those are the Christ of the Bible. And when you try to force Christ to be who you want Him to be, rather than who He is, this is what He does. He withdraws. And that's terrifying. It's exactly what He does here to this crowd. They came to take him by force and make him king, the king who would be their physical deliverer, and he leaves them. See, they had missed the point. This was a tragic end to a glorious meal. He had supernaturally provided for them. Right before the eyes of 20,000 people, he created something out of nothing, and they ate it. They experienced it to their satisfaction, to their fill. Not a one of them remained hungry. But they missed the point, which is that the provision and the source of true satisfaction is Christ Himself. But in mercy, Jesus will get very explicit. His dealings with this crowd is not over. And he will get very explicit with them when he meets them back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He will say to them in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You see, the soul was created for Christ. And the only lasting The only way to have lasting satisfaction is to find it in Him, in the true Christ, as He has presented Himself. Christian, when you look for satisfaction elsewhere, you will never find it. And you know that to be true by experience, because we all do it. You may experience some fleeting pleasures in this world, but you know it never lasts never has, and it never will. As Jonathan Edwards once said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. He nailed it. 
And I would only add to that that our knowledge and experience of God comes through the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. You cannot know nor enjoy God apart from Christ. He came to create a people for Himself. A people who find their true delight and true satisfaction in Him. He died to pay the penalty of our sins, the giving of His flesh, the shedding of His blood, and He rose to grant us everlasting life in Him. He did not give of His body and His blood so that we would find satisfaction elsewhere. Keep your eyes on Christ, church. He is what you were made for, and He is what you were saved for. This is why we must stay in the Word. Don't despise or underestimate the value of simple and consistent means of grace in your life, of daily being in His Word and being in prayer and weekly being here in worship to hear the Word preached and to sing His praises. Keeping Christ at the center of your life and feeding on Him in simple consistency. Showing that He is our true satisfaction and that He is enough. Because He truly is enough, church. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank You. Thank you that you have provided bread from heaven of which we all get to feast upon in in your Son. Thank you that our lasting satisfaction has been met in him. Lord, we pray and ask that you would strengthen our faith, that you would help us to rely upon him, to look to him, to find our delight and our pleasure at your right hand. God, we want to seek your Son every day. We want to be faithful in just the daily consistency. We pray for your grace to do so. Lord, may our lives demonstrate and proclaim to this world that Christ is our true treasure. Thank you, Father, for the provision of your Son. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.